Well, Wheatbix was gone from the warehouse and then it was back. Sanitarium announced today it will resume supplies of the 97% whole grain dry rectangles. Hasn't had wheat bix at some time in their lives. It's got a lot of people talking about the competition within the grocery sector. The Labour Party announced yesterday it would back credible companies wanting to get into or expand into the New Zealand grocery business. The New Zealand Initiative is urging stronger focus on grocery competition. With us is business advisor and former New Zealand Food and Grocery Council Chief Executive Catherine Rich. Catherine, welcome. Thank you for having me. A pleasure. What's your take on this saga that's happened the last week or so? Sanitarium stopping supply to the warehouse, uh, not stopping supply to anybody else, just the warehouse, but then resuming it. Yes, I think um, Sanitarium understands that they did make a mistake. Traditionally, when companies run out of product, they look at how to ration it across major um customers. But of course, with all the discussion about competition in the New Zealand grocery retail market, suppliers have to be super careful to have a fair rationing mechanism because there's such a heightened scrutiny of their decisions and in particular to make sure they keep supplying those fledgling new entrants. So I'm not surprised the warehouse raised the red flag and been sorted, which is good. Yeah, so a positive outcome for them. Would it have had anything to do with or not the fact that, you know, Weepix, uh, sorry, Sanitarium, sorry, the warehouse uh, might use the likes of Weepix as somewhat of a loss leader, selling it for b- below cost, uh, getting people in, other supermarkets going, hey, hang on, that's not fair. Well, it's, it's not the case that it's not fair. It is very fair in a competitive environment, but I can imagine the conversations going on behind mm. the scenes because traditionally, the moment there was a good special um, in the market, uh, foodstuffs representatives or, or Woolworths representatives would be on the phone to suppliers saying, "How how can that be?" So, suppliers have been under immense pressure. But it is important that the the new entrants, like the warehouse and the Costco's and the night and days get equitable access. So when firms do have to ration, they've got to have a good process for doing that. Otherwise, they're going to end up in the press. So I think this is one of the first instances and suppliers and retailers should be warned. Okay, interesting. All right, shall we start with Selwyn? You know, um, Catherine, um, what role do you think uh, the spectre of the Commerce Commission getting involved would have had on the outcome of this? Well, I think it's the first instance of the Commission sending a letter, and it's a good reminder about the heightened scrutiny on on the grocery retail market. Everybody wants to ensure that there is greater competition. And to give credit to the Labor government, they've put in place a lot of changes which will allow um, greater competition. But it's, it's going to be a long, long road. Um, suppliers... They're going to have to think very carefully about their decisions. Now, suppliers run into food production problems all the time. We found that particularly during COVID. But you've got to make your decision about who you're going to supply fairly. And this this was just really a, a, a shot across the bow to remind everybody to do that.
And do you think too oh, that sanitarium, um, sanitarium having um, charity status as an obligation to actually, you know, be much more engaging with the smaller uh, outlets, or or to look at things that are not necessarily uh, relating to getting maximum price for product. Well, certainly I know, and I've worked with Sanitarium for, I don't work with them currently, but over the last 15 years or so, as a faith-based company, they think about these issues very, very deeply, and um, they do provide so much product to community groups, and they, they would have, I just think they've made a mistake here and not thought it through, and they've they thought about some of their markets in the Pacific and other export markets, but I think this is a good example to all suppliers to tread carefully when you've got a shortage. Now put on new, put on the extra shifts, um, have a fair and equitable rationing mechanism. But obviously, you know, the likes of the warehouse and other non-duopoly retailers are going to raise red flags if they don't think they're being treated well. All right, clear. Yeah, Catherine, I was just wondering, how do we stack up to other countries in terms of the level of controls that we have in this space and the sense of a duopoly and the control they seem to have in the market? Very good question. We have the most highly concentrated market in the world. Mm. There is nowhere in the world we have two major players having such a dominant position. And that's why we also have the most profitable supermarkets in the world. And... You know, I look at it and we think we're the only place on the planet where you can make the New Zealand rich list by owning one shop that does not happen anywhere else. So, you know, good on Labor for making the changes that they did do. They looked at um, getting rid of land covenants and bringing in a commissioner and a code. Um, and I, I also think it's good that they're flagging the continuation of their journey because mm. it's not just what we've got. There's a lot of work to be done to undo two decades of mess. Are you hoping, uh, Catherine, that this process continues whatever government comes in because clearly it's a top issue for Kiwis? Yes, Wallace, it is a top issue for Kiwis. It affects everybody. And, uh, you know, I'm out of the food industry now, but I do know that uh, it's going to take the next government to continue to scrutinise the market Mm. duopoly. You have very high margins. New Zealanders are paying more for their groceries than many places in the world. It's going to have to have additional focus. Um, I I suspect foodstuffs and countdowns look at... um, the code being in place and thinking, phew, thank goodness that's over. But it is going to require new entrants. The warehouse has to continue its work, Costco, night and day, but hopefully a new entrant. Okay. Nice to have you on, Catherine. Kia ora. That's Catherine Rich there, um, business advisor, former New Zealand Food and Grocery Council Chief Executive. Thank you for being with us on the panel. Lovely to hear your responses, particularly around your rediscovered passions. Another one said, I've rediscovered the Rubik's Cube. Another one said, Scottish country dancing. But to this today on the programme, with much attention going to anti-vax sentiment and issues of misinformation taking up, you know, a considerable portion of the media, it is easy to overlook the fact that it's been a remarkable few years in science. At the advent of COVID-19, the race was on for a vaccine. People were dying around the world, no vaccine in sight, and it was assumed it could take years. 
Well, two scientists who pioneered research into the messenger RNA uses the basis for the Pfizer, BioNTech and Moderna vaccines that saved millions of lives during the pandemic have been awarded the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. That's Professors Catlin Carico and Drew Wiseman. With us is Kurt Krauss, a professor of biochemistry at the University of Otago, who's in Missouri right now. And I really appreciate you, Kurt, staying up late for us today. Akira Wallace, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, and you're coming through loud and clear. And now, first oh, up, I understand that you are one that actually nominates people for the Nobel Prize. I, I, that's true. It's true. I, I think I'm not exactly sure how it happened. When I moved to New Zealand, I got invited to I actually got a, a, a gold sort of um, in, engraved envelope from Sweden. And I thought, oh, my goodness, have I won an award? And then I thought, no, I think that that's not going to happen. So I opened it up and it was an invitation to nominate for um, the Nobel Prize in Chemistry. And I think it's just by virtue of me moving to New Zealand and accepting the position I accepted. <laughs> well, it's extraordinary. And I also understand that you did nominate a couple working with mRNA, but another couple. Right, right. And, and, and another set. There's actually sort of three key discoveries that are played into this RNA vaccine. And the, the, the two people who received the award today, Catalin Carrico and Drew Weissman, incredibly worthy people. But what a story. I mean, it's got discovery, passion, mm. underdog, heartbreak, and triumph over adversity. It, it's really quite a remarkable tale. We have a panel, of course. Kurt, they'll have some questions. Claire? I just think this is incredibly exciting, and it, mm. it's it's a return to um, a positive framing of an issue that has been um, framed so negatively. And I, I think we can very quickly lose sight of how quickly these things got developed. You know, we sort of, it's not taken us long to just take it for granted. And I, I, I don't, I think maybe we don't appreciate how incredibly quickly things happened. Fair point, Kurt. Well, it, it did seem quickly, right? And that actually, I think, caused some of the initial resistance to the mRNA. But in fact, behind the scenes, these two scientists were working like crazy to get mm. people to even be interested in it. Uh, Kathleen Carrico had to leave her, her uh, position at University mm. of Pennsylvania because she couldn't get grant funding. Nobody uh, believed it was going to work. Nobody believed it was possible, but she had this passion. She had this incredible passion that she could do it. She could make it work. And then little by little, after you know multiple difficult experiments that, that didn't pan out, they finally found the trick to allowing the mRNA to actually get into human cells and produce the proteins that are needed to make the vaccine. Then they went back and people wouldn't publish it. Nature didn't publish it. Science didn't publish it. Mm. They finally got it in, in print. And then slowly, uh, companies started showing an interest. And after several years, BioNTech and Moderna both raised their hand and said, hey, we think this might be a good idea. But again, that's th th they originally started working on HIV uh, uh, vaccines, and it was years ago. And so... After um, a setup since I guess they started around 2005 in earnest, and after a long, long time, they were in the perfect position to take everything they knew and put it against COVID. And that's mm. why it seemed fast, because uh, of all of this preparatory work. Yeah, Selwyn. 
You know, what fascinates me, and, and um, Kurt, was gonna, I'm going to put something to you here. Um, hopefully you'll be able to expand on it. Um, the mRNA, how it trains the body in a way to, to react to, you know, the, the virus. And this is a big part, obviously, with a response to the COVID um, problem. What, what's that look like in the future? Uh, what, mm. this, 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 how, how does this um, affect, like I was reading literature on the BBC site, relating to how this same kind of approach can perhaps be effective with those that are um, experiencing cancer and cancer cells? Can yeah, you speak to those points? Very much. I think that's, a, that's a, a really good thing to point out. So the way that um, immunity happens naturally is we encounter a pathogen, say something like a, like a, a flu virus, right? So we encounter that when it infects us, and then our body raises up antibodies and immune cells to attack the flu. Well, generally speaking, what we're actually uh, raising these antibodies against are protein molecules. And so the protein molecules come from the infecting particle, right? The infecting um, organism. So our body makes proteins. What we do is we've got DNA that stores our heredity and the DNA is actually a, a blueprint for making thousands and thousands of proteins. And the proteins are the sort of little nanomachines that make our body run. So the way our, our body makes proteins is DNA sends out messenger RNA to the cell and messenger RNA goes to the ribosome and the ribosome makes the proteins. So it's DNA, RNA, proteins. So here before before uh, COVID nineteen, we always made vaccines by either having a attenuated or a killed strain of virus, or we made our own proteins. Now what we, they're doing is we're injecting mRNA into our cells. Our cells make the protein, and then the immune responses to the protein that our cells have has, have made. So our, our RNA is much easier to use in terms of designing proteins. It's easy because we have. We've sequenced the DNA for the entire body, so we have the sequence for all the proteins that need to be made, so we can uh, get the RNA, um, rapidly redesign new vaccines. These new vaccines go in and make the proteins, and then the proteins are used to, to uh, the, the body uses the proteins to raise up immune cells. So we can do this now against almost any pathogen. And as you mentioned, we're trying now to use it against uh, uh, cancer cells to see, could we make designer vaccines against cancers? So that's kind of the, the future. The future sort of the sky's the limit. Uh, but it went from the, these, these two researchers being unable to get funding at the point of giving up. And there's just a bit of heartbreak. Uh, the, 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 I remember that, that uh, Catalin Carrico had to go home and her mom said, you know, I believe in you. One day we're going to listen and you'll get a Nobel Prize. And she said, Mom, I can't even get a grant. How can I ever get a prize? And boom, now she's gotten it. Well, and um, it's ex Brilliant. it's an extraordinary story, Kurt. And here you are uh, being on a panel that chooses Nobel Prize winners, not these two. But no, uh, it's no I don't choose them. <laughs> well, let's, I just send in nominations. No, no, sorry, sorry. <laughs> Give <them> a... <laughs> Good clarification there, Professor Krauss. Kia ora. Thanks for your time today. Uh, Pleasure. That's, yeah, Kurt Krauss, here, Professor of Biochemistry at the University of Otago, acknowledging the extraordinary story of those two people, Kathleen Carrico and Drew Wiseman, Nobel Prize winners. Finally on the show, have a listen to this.
Ah, Temuru, I'm talking to you. Have you missed the sound? There's nothing like a good bong. Well, Timaru's beautiful 110-year-old clock replica of the famous Big Ben in London hasn't been chiming since 2019. But with the help of a horologist from Christchurch, it is ready to chime again. With us is Andrew Ferry, Timaru's District Council Property Facilities Officer. Andrew, kia ora. Great to have you here. Hello. Music to our ears nationwide. Is it chiming again, Andrew? Not yet. We're waiting on uh, a part to be put back in, uh, but we're hoping that's going to happen this week. So exciting, Claire, isn't it? It don't, is. Don't you it love that sound? <laughs> How long has it since 2019? Back in 2019, this happened every hour on the hour? Yes. Yep, all through the night, uh, much to the neighbours' uh, annoyance. Hang on. That can't be right, <laughs> really. <laughs> all, all through the night? Yes, all through the night. Salwyn. Well, I think that's just fantastic. This is New Zealand's version of Big Ben, isn't it? Um, you know, so, uh, you know, this is to be celebrated. You know, imagine yeah. how many people have kind of structured their night's sleep or otherwise around that chiming thing. But beyond that, you know, it's a fixture. It's a yeah. symbol of that town. And here it is coming back into being a big part of it again. All of the bits and pieces, you know, being polished up, re-engineered, repaired, oiled up, I'd imagine. Um, back to you, because I just think that this is a great thing. Yeah. I saw a documentary just very quickly on uh, on the same kind of process, I suppose, going on with Big Ben, and here's New Zealand's oh, okay. version of that. Andrew? Yeah, uh, yeah so it is loosely modelled on Big Ben. Um, well, Big Ben is actually the, the bell, but the uh, clock mechanism, um, it, the Timaru clock is loosely based on that. Um, but we have uh, five bells in the tower, uh, and the, the sequence of it is that of uh, the same as what is in London. How many other towns have chiming town clocks these days? Can you text me? Does your town have a chiming town clock? 2101. I lived in Nelson for some years, and I used to love the cathedral bells. It's very special, oh, yeah. isn't it, Andrew? Is it a source of pride for Timaru? Uh, yeah, we've had um, a lot of feedback from local residents. Um, it was uh, a, a point uh, made especially by one of the councillors who, who wanted to see it uh, chiming again, working again. Love the it. clock, the, both the clock and the chimes have been running temporarily for yeah, a few years now. The clock has been going and been going uh, relatively on time um, for the last uh, wee while. We've, uh, we stopped it just before... Uh, daylight savings just to repair a chain and, and so we've restarted the clock again now and we're just waiting for the, cha- the chimes to get restarted. Andrew, can I ask a technical question? How does sure. it actually work? Is it old school sort of clock mechanism? Oh, there's obviously no human intervention but or is it's it not electronic, is it? Um, there is an electric motor that runs okay. the, the whole thing but it, it, is, it is how you think uh, if you open up a watch all little cogs, although these will be big cogs. Um, there's a pendulum swinging uh, from the clock mechanism that down into the bell chamber, um, and the, there's chains running down into the bell chamber that uh, run all the different cogs. And all, the, 
Well, that's great, and all the very best. And I can't wait to uh, hear it uh, again next time. I'm in Timaru. Okay. That's Andrew Ferry, the Timaru District Council, uh, there talking about the chimes uh, that are coming again. Carterton has a chime in town clock. <laughs> Gisborne has a town clock. Westport has a clock tower. Beautiful. Blenheim. There are a few for Blenheim. They've got a chime-in clock. Waimati, Cambridge, Carterton again. Has Auckland ever had one? Well, I'm just going to say, does the North Shore have a chime-in clock? Not you the North Shore. Does, Tor- does Torbay have a sh- chime-in clock? <laughs> <laughs> Is there a chime-in clock in Torbay? <laughs> maybe, maybe we could fundraise for an Albany one. I think, I think, I think so. <laughs> I, it's, it speaks to a spirit, doesn't it? The town hall clock, wonderful. Hey, you have both been fantastic. Salwyn Manning, Claire Amos, come again. Claire, that's been fantastic. Oh, I'll be back. Uh, I'm Wallace Chapman. See you tomorrow, 3.45. Lisa Owen at Checkpoint is next. <laughs>